Would you please turn your Bibles to the book of Psalms? We're going to be looking at Psalm 2 this morning. And if you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 448. And this is only the, the third Sunday in 2022. And so far, nothing has gone as planned. You know, nothing has gone as I would have expected it just a month ago. Remember our first Sunday, we had to cancel our monthly fellowship potluck due to the rise in COVID cases. And through the rise of COVID cases, my, my son, poor David, still has not been back to school since uh, before Christmas. And we had planned, then last week, we had planned an ordination service. And again, because of my exposure to COVID, we needed to, to reschedule it. Well, today, we had planned to have our former Northgate pastor, Richard Smith, here to lead us in Sunday school and, and to preach and to tell us about the work that he's doing at Penn State with international students. But as many of you know, Richard slipped on the ice and he really messed up his knee and he had to cancel his trip, had to call off his trip. And so I had then planned to go back to 1 Corinthians as I'd been preaching before Christmas. But then during my personal devotion time, I read Psalm 2. And then I felt very strongly that this is what I was to preach on today. And this is the the third time that I've been preaching from this pulpit that I've called an audible, where I felt the, the Holy Spirit leading me to preach something other than what I had planned to preach. And the first time, some of you may remember, was actually the first time I preached from this pulpit, uh, nearly six years ago when uh, I was coming here to candidate to be your pastor. And some of you know the story. In, in the morning, I was going through my sermon, reading it, and it just didn't feel right. It just did not feel like what I should preach. And I remember Lynn was in the shower and knocked on the door. I said, Lynn, I don't think I should preach my sermon. He said, what? <laughs> and thankfully, I had a sermon that I preached the week before at another church, and I preached that. And then when I came here, I, I had a confirmation. I, I had nothing to do with the bulletin. Donna Burrell put the bulletin together and the, and the list of hymns. They just had a list, and they would go through the list of hymns. And the hymn after the, uh, after the sermon referenced when I, survey, was when I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross, which was a hymn that I referenced in my sermon. So that was, for me, confirmation that the Lord had really wanted me to change sermons. And also further confirmation, I actually did get called to this church. So I am your pastor now. So so that worked as well. So the Holy Spirit doesn't change my preaching plans often. But when he does, I, I find that it's best to listen. So here now, Psalm 2, the word of the living God. Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his annoying, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your word. 
And I pray now that your Holy Spirit will speak through me. Father, I pray that I will speak your words with truth. I will speak it with your power and with conviction. And Lord, I pray that I will speak with gentleness and compassion, but never compromising your truth. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will open our hearts to hear from you. Hear where we need to be corrected. Hear where we need to be rebuked. And comfort us where we need to be comforted. And above all, Father, let us see the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the center of the psalm. He is the center of our worship. He is the center of your word. He is the one who is to be seen. He is the one who is to be pleased. He is the one who is to be glorified. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, like many of you, I am saddened. I am frustrated when I look at the actions and the ideologies and the propaganda of many of those who are in positions of power in this world. From government leaders at all levels, both elected and bureaucrats, leaders in the entertainment industry, leaders in education, leaders in, in, the, in the media, and in, in big tech, in big business. And the things we see from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, they are offensive. They are, from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, they're idiotic. They seem to make no sense whatsoever. But actually, they do make sense. They make sense in light of Psalm 2. The reason behind all these actions and ideologies and propaganda is hatred of God. Hatred for God. Let me just name a few. I'm sure you're, you're aware of these things. In West Lafayette, Indiana, is considering an ordinance that would find what they call unlicensed counselors. And what they really mean is Christian counselors and Christian pastors. The fine would be $1,000 a day. And what is the offense? The offense is failing to affirm a person's sexual identity and gender identification. And some of you may know, in Canada, just north of us, at this very moment, there is a law that is in place. It's even worse than this. It'll make it a felony. Up to five years in prison. If you do this, if you fail to affirm, if you, if you fail to, to take into account what someone feels their sexual orientation or their gender identity is. And the law itself has an understanding of sex. It, it, it calls the Christian understanding of sexuality a myth. It calls it a myth. And this is what we are seeing. And what is the motivation behind these types of laws? Well, it'll tell you it's to, it's to protect people, to protect LGBT people. But the real reason is a hatred of God. They want to stamp out God. They want to stamp out his word. They want to silence his word. Again, a father in Canada, he was arrested. What was his crime? Defying a court order, which actually said that he was committing child abuse. And you know how he abused his child? He called his biological female child a daughter. This got him arrested because this daughter of his claimed that she was a male. The father hurt the daughter? No, absolutely not. He was arrested because the state wants to be sovereign. The state wants to define reality. And the man would not submit to this nonsense, so he was arrested. The real reason for his arrest was they hate God. And we're seeing cultural pressure, even here. There are even laws, and thankfully many of these laws have been struck down by the courts as unconstitutional, that we must use a person's preferred pronouns. And the problem with this is it is distorting reality. It is forcing us to go along with something that is against reality. 
We don't decide who's male and female. We don't decide that. That is decided by God. Again, this is a reaction against God. And why do people so strongly get offended if we use the wrong pronouns? Because they hate God. They want to define reality, not have God define reality. Again, we prayed for a few months ago, a Canadian pastor, jailed. Again, what was his crime? Doing the same thing we're doing right now. Having a church worship service in violation of the government's draconian COVID restrictions. And why was he jailed? They'll say to protect health. But no, it's because they hate God. They hate his church. They hate to see him worship. And they will use any excuse to cease the worship of the God they hate. And they say there's a physical danger. There's a physical danger. People might get sick. There's always a physical danger when God's people come to worship. Always a danger. Why do you think the early church met in catacombs? Because the government wanted to kill them. They were persecuting. Today, the church in China, in Iran, in North Korea, they face danger, even death, if they are discovered. There is always a physical danger to worship. But what so many cultural Christians in the comfortable West fail to understand is that there is an even greater spiritual danger. There is an eternal danger not to worship God. And this is a vastly greater danger. And and, and so many in the church are blind to this danger. In this country, the current administration is attempting to force all workers to be vaccinated against COVID in order to keep their jobs. And thankfully, this was stayed for, for many workers last week by the Supreme Court. But we have people in our own congregation who can lose their only means of supporting themselves because they have either medical reasons or reasons of conscience why they cannot comply with this order. And this order is not about health, my friends. It's not. It's about control. It's because the architects of these orders hate God. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not anti-vaccine. I am vaccinating myself. I'm not anti-medicine. I'm not anti-safety. I am anti-mandate. I am anti-making an idol out of medicine, making an idol out of the government, making an idol out of our safety. And I'm opposed to to looking to these things to provide what only God can provide. And this is just one part of the government and the media stirring up so much fear, fear about this virus. And why are they doing this? Because they want people to look to the government. They want people to look to a vaccine to be their savior. They want the government to be their God. And why are they doing this? Because they hate the true God. They hate the God of the Bible. It goes on. We see it in cancel culture. Attempts to erase from history anyone who doesn't follow the current cultural orthodoxy defined by those who hate God. Now, people in the past, of course, they were all sinners. They had many flaws. They did many evil things. But for the most part, people in the past recognized reality, God's reality, and they took it for granted. But even this cannot be tolerated by those who hate God now. And I think the saddest of all that we see by those who hate God are they are once again applying this evil Darwinian notion of race to separate, to cause division, to cause hostilities and hatred among divine image bearers. Scripture teaches Modern genetics confirms that there is only one biological race of humanity. Every single one of us are related. We are descendants of Adam and Eve. We are all created in God's image. And every single person from preborn to natural death, every ethnicity, every people group, every language, regardless of physical differences, regardless of physical 
disabilities. Every single person is made in God's image and is deserving of infinite worth. And the physical differences that we observe, an evolutionary world where we would say, well, this represents that some people are, are more evolved and, 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 and lower evolved state. But scripture tells us that these differences come from a geographic separation of humanity caused by the Tower of Babel. We are all one family. But those who hate God, they use those physical differences to define what set of physical characteristics were, were deemed morally or intellectually superior. In our own country, we looked at the level of pigmentation and skin to justify the evil of slavery. And today, my friends, we are seeing the same thing. Because of your pigmentation or because of your sin pattern, that is not the currently celebrated sin pattern, what has to do with sexual deviancy, then you have no credibility. You cannot speak to matters of justice. If you are a so-called white, cisgender, heterosexual male, then you are by definition an oppressor and your perspective is invalid. My friends, this is the same evil that the Christian church works so hard to stamp out of our nation. And the perpetrators of this so-called critical race theory, they fail to see that they are antithetical to the values of the abolitionists and the civil rights leaders who, see they, who they see themselves as a successor to. They, they would see Dr. Martin Luther King's dream of a world where we're not judged by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. They would see that as an anathema. And the really bizarre thing is the strongest proponents of this lunacy, they themselves fall into the category that they would call oppressor. And is this ideology fueled by a genuine love of the oppressed and the marginalized? No. It's fueled by a hatred for God and a desire to see chaos, a desire to see anarchy. It's because they hate God. And who do they see as the biggest oppressor? The Christian church, the Bible, the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. They see the very tradition, in fact, the only tradition that provides the theological and the moral foundation for care for the marginalized in the first place. <clears throat> These are just a few examples of the philosophies and ideologies we see in our world today. Ideologies of those who hate God. And when we realize that all this idiocy that causes us as believers so much frustration is really the result of a single motivation, hatred of God, really has the same goal, denial of God's authority, saying that I am God, I am autonomous, and really the destruction of God's image bearers. I mean, think of the evil of abortion that has slaughtered tens of millions of the most vulnerable, the most marginalized of these image bearers. When we realize this, it all then makes sense to us. See, my friends, this is nothing new. In fact, it's very old. This is nothing unexpected. Scripture sees this and addresses this. And this is what we have in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 provides us God's answer to these ludicrous actions and, and, and ideologies and, and propaganda that cause us such frustration. Psalm 2 provides relief for this frustration. Well, look at the first three verses of Psalm 2. Here we see the people who hate God. Here we see those politicians and bureaucrats and business leaders and media leaders and all the mindless masses that follow them and sadly deceived by them. See, those deceived, they may not hate God, but they are manipulated by those who do, by those who oppose God and his revealed word. So Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings, the powerful of the earth, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. His anointed is Jesus Christ. 
And it's against his against Christ and against all who worship him, the church. And they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. See, my friends, they rage against God. They plot against God. And of course it's in vain. They can't be God. But they take counsel together. They plot together against God in general. But it's specifically against Jesus Christ, his anointed. They hate Christ. They hate the anointed word. And they hate his church. They hate those who worship Jesus Christ. And those of us who proclaim his word, they hate us. So why do they hate? Why do they hate God? Why do they hate him? Well, they hate him because they refuse to submit to him. They refuse to accept the fact that he is sovereign and we are not. As verse 3 says, they think somehow that they can burst God's bonds and cast away his cords from them, which means they think that somehow they can escape God's sovereign control over them. Right? They say, God doesn't define my gender. I do. God doesn't, doesn't define reality. I do. I can control the length of my life apart from him. I can do this. I can do what I want. And this view obviously is in vain. And this is why they hate God. Why, why do they hate us? Well, they hate us as the church because we proclaim God's word. Because we are God's people. They really can't hurt him. They can't destroy him, so they attack us. They seek to attack us. They seek to destroy us. But take comfort. Look at God's reaction to those who hate him, to those who, who plot in vain against him and is against his anointed and against his church. Take a look at verse 4. And I love verse 4. This is one, one, of, one of the most satisfying verses, I think, in, in, in all of Scripture. It says, He who sits in heavens, that's the Lord, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Derision means mockery, a contemptuous ridicule. Basically, God mocks those who oppose him. God laughs at them who hate him and foolishly disregard his law and promote all kinds of evil. God laughs at them. See, God is not threatened. God is not frustrated. The wickedness that seems so pervasive, that seems to us by those in power, seems so overwhelming to us, so completely frustrating to us, is completely under God's control. And if you take a step back, if you look at the lunacy, it, it naturally invites mockery. And the fact that God himself mocks these things should be a great comfort to us. Because what we see is the culture, those who hate God, they basically gaslight Christians. They want us to think that it, we are the ones who are out of touch with reality because we don't buy into the propaganda, even though there are many people, even many people who are proposing and, and, and promoting this propaganda. See, to them, we are the ones who, you'll hear this expression, we are the ones who are on the wrong side of history. Well, my friends, we may be on the wrong side of history, but those who oppose God and those who oppose his word, they are on the wrong side of eternity. And unless we are grounded in God's word, God's word is our standard of reality, we will be deceived. And my friends, we see millions, millions of Christians, Christians who are biblically illiterate, who don't know their right hand from their left hand, and, and, and who crave the, the acceptance by those who, who hate God. And we see them buying into Satan's lies. And this should really infuriate us. Because eternal souls are at stake. These lies are targeting our children. They are targeting our grandchildren. They are targeting our friends and our loved ones. And we're told to sit back. We're told as Christians that we should be nice. While all these loved ones are being deceived all the way into hell. No, my friends, we must expose 
these lies. We must expose them with the truth, the truth of God's word. Just last month, a pastor in our denomination, really the the reason for these overtures that I mentioned about, a man who holds a clearly unbiblical view of sanctification, and a man who's refusing to be corrected by his brothers in the church, men who he took a vow to as a a pastor. I take a vow to be be subordinate to my brothers in, in the faith. He doesn't, he doesn't do this. And he wrote an article in the USA Today trashing the denomination, trashing the biblical view, all to the applause of the unbelievers, telling them what they want to hear. Again, instead of showing humility and being taught by godly men, being taught by godly tradition and by our confession, men, again, men he had taken a vow in his ordination to submit to, he looks to the unbelievers. He looks to the USA Today to validate his point. And this should in itself be a warning. Of course, unbelievers who oppose God will approve of you because they hate God. Jesus said in Luke, 20, and Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, i.e. the USA Today and unbelievers, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But Psalm 2 reorients us, reorients us to reality. It lifts us out of the fantasy land thrust upon us by those who hate God. But not only does God mock those who hate him, he also punishes them in his wrath. Look at verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. But friends, this is not a good thing. This is not a good thing at all for those who hate God. They will face the wrath of God. They will face his fury. Those who set themselves up against God, those who reject his authority, those who plot in vain against him, those who seek to burst his bonds, those who refuse to submit to him, they will face the most awful fate imaginable. They will face the full, unmitigated wrath of God for all eternity. My friends, this is unspeakably horrible. And look what God in his fury reveals to these rebels, to those that hate him. Look at verse 6. It says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, do these kings of, of nations of the earth that rage against the Lord, a Yahweh, against his anointed? God reveals the true king, the king that he has set up on Zion, on his holy hill in his heavenly city. And who is this king? Well, verse 7, the king speaks. The psalm shifts to the first person, words of this king. And look at verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And who is the Son of God? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King. He is the Lord's anointed. Against Him the nations rage. Christ is the stumbling block to God's enemies. Scripture tells us the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Then in verses 8 and 9, Yahweh, the Father, is now speaking to His Son. He says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth, your possessions, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See, these kings, these rulers, these who think they're in charge, they think the earth is theirs. They think that the nation, that God, his sovereignty has temporarily placed them over. They think they belong to them. But no, no, they belong to God and they are given to his son as his heritage. And here's an important principle. 
Every leader, every president, every governor, every mayor or judge or justice or congressman or senator, everyone has been placed in his or her position by God and is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone is accountable to him, regardless of whether they are believers or not. Christ alone is the sovereign. My friends, there is no such thing as an autonomous government. There is no such thing as a secular government. The government is under Christ, not under the church. The church and, and the government have different functions, different responsibilities. The church proclaims the gospel. The church administers the sacrament. The government or the civil magistrate restrains evil, maintains order, provides a safe and a stable environment for the church to fulfill its role. But both of them are under Christ. Both of them are under Christ. And our founding fathers of this nation, although many of them were not Christians, they at least understood that they were not autonomous, but rather that they were under, as they said it, nature's God. But sadly, sadly those in power today reject this fact. They don't recognize Christ's authority. God has made this fact obvious to all, but because they hate God, they willingly suppress this obvious truth to their own judgment. And hence they set themselves up against God, against his church, against his word. And again, this is the underlying theme. This is the common denominator in all this evil and lunacy that we see in the world today. Actually, that we've seen throughout history in the world. And much of it, and this is the sad part, much of it has even crept into the self-professing Christian church. And what we see here is a warfare against God. And verse 9 shows the outcome of this warfare. Again, this is God the Father speaking to Christ the King. He says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This does not go well for those opposing God. It will go very, very badly for them. But this psalm is not just a psalm of judgment. There is also grace in this psalm. Grace is offered. Grace is offered to the kings. Grace is offered to the rulers. Look at verses 10 through 12. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. You see, my friends, there are only two types of people. Two types of people. Those who oppose the Son and those who submit to the Son. He alone, Christ alone is the key. He is either the cornerstone or he is the rock of stumbling. He is either the source of salvation or he is the source of destruction. In verses 10 through 12, they offer a choice. Every single person has a choice. The kings of the earth, will they continue in their foolish rebellion or will they submit to the Son? And verse 10 here is a plea. It's a plea for these powerful and, and rebellious leaders to be wise. It is a call for them to be warned of the dangerous path upon which they are on. They cannot claim ignorance. They can't say, God, you're not being fair. God, God makes it clear to them. God gives them fair warning. God gives them a chance to change course. And their option is to stay the course, which leads to destruction, or they are given a way of escape, which is shown in verse 11, which says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It's not too late for these rebellious ones. There is still hope for those who hate God. God holds out an olive branch. 
They can serve God. They can submit to Him. They can cease their hostility. And they can bow to Christ. It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve with fear and rejoice with trembling. This doesn't make sense. What does this mean? Well, fear of the Lord is not the same thing as fearing something that's terrible or, or something that's dangerous or evil. Certainly, God certainly is dangerous. His, his wrath is dangerous, especially if it's directed toward us. Certainly, it's terrible. But God is not evil. God is good. God is holy. My friends, this is the problem. He is holy, but we are not. We are not good. We are not holy. And his wrath against us is just. We are without excuse. <clears throat> there is no appeal. We are guilty and we deserve this wrath. But God is not only good, he's not only holy, he's not only just, he's also merciful. He's also gracious. He's also long-suffering. He's also quick to forgive for those who submit to him, to those who kiss the Son, as we are told in verse 12. And what does this mean, kiss the Son? Well, it's another way to say of those who embrace Christ, those who by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Son of God alone, accept Christ. This is the only way to escape God's wrath. This is the only way of escape, kissing the Son. So for those who kiss the Son, God's wrath is turned away from them. It is absorbed by that same Son. He takes the wrath they deserved and he gives them his sonship. Those who were once God's enemies, who hated God, are now his sons. No longer hating him, but loving him. And now praising him for his goodness and for his mercy. So this fear now changes character. It's no longer an abject terror of the one who's doomed to damnation by God's wrath. It is now a healthy, a devout, a loving reverence of his holiness, of his justice, of his grace, of his mercy. And it fills us with, a, with an unspeakable joy and comfort. See, the, the trembling is not the trembling of, of one doomed and facing the horrors of hell. It is a trembling of one who has been spared. It's the trembling of those whose, whose eyes have been opened before it's too late. While they still had time to, to leave the road that they were heading toward destruction. It's the trembling of the thought of, of what might have been. Of what was justly deserved, but what only because of grace they do not receive. And it's filled with rejoicing. The rejoicing of one who has experienced God's amazing grace. The one who, when he thought he was doomed and without hope, is unexpectedly and undeservedly shown mercy, given grace. This is the rejoice and trembling that we see in verse 11. And it all comes down to the Son. It all comes down to our relationship with Jesus Christ. Do we brace him? Do we kiss him? Do we take refuge in him? Or do we continue to rage and plot in vain against him? Rejection of his grace will face his anger. This will face his wrath. This, will, this is the path of destruction. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. And my friend, this, this psalm was so eye-opening for me because I think it, it, it put a, a spotlight on this, this cosmic battle taking place before our eyes. And it's showing us clarity. Clarity where I think there was much confusion, where there was much frustration. Clarity where there was much panic. See, the nations and, and the rulers are, and powerful, they do rage against us. They do rage against the Lord. They rage against his anointed, against Jesus Christ. But it's not that complicated. It's not confusing. In fact, it's very, very clear. 
The rebellion is against Christ. It is because they hate God. It's because they hate Christ. But my friends, we have nothing to fear. This rebellion will not stand. We are to kiss the Son. We are to take refuge in Him. We are to serve Him with fear and rejoice with trembling. We are to faithfully stand up to all this evil and all this nonsense and stand with the Son. We are to refuse to compromise, refuse to back down, refuse to buy into the lies that is told so many times over and over by so many people that everyone thinks they are the truth. My friends, God's word alone is truth. Scripture alone is our guiding light. Scripture alone is our path in the darkness. If we stray from Scripture, we will lose our way. And this psalm should give us confidence in God to look to Christ. It should free us from fear, free us from frustration, knowing Christ is not panicked, knowing that God sits in the heavens and he laughs at these schemes and these ideologies and these plans that oppose him. He will judge. He will set all things right in his time. So what does this look like for us right now, right here? Well, it means we don't give in to fear. And it's easy to be afraid now, isn't it? Right? I mean, think at this moment, the number of new cases of COVID is at an all-time high. And what's even worse is we are seeing failure of things that we put our trust in, failure of these visible things. Many people thought, I got my vaccination. I'm okay. I'm not going to get sick. Guess what? There are people who are getting sick. There are people who are dying who have been vaccinated. We are to trust God. We are to, to resist looking to the government, resist looking to technology as our savior. God uses technology. Of course, God uses government. God uses modern medicine. All of these things are his means that he will deliver. These are means of common grace. These are, these are in many senses, answer to prayers. I don't reject these things. I see these things as answer the prayer. But we are never to forget, never to forget, these things are only tools in his hands. They in themselves, technology, medicine, vaccines, government, they have no power. They are nothing. They are not where our security lies. It lies in Christ, in Christ alone. And if we forget this, we're lost. If we forget this, we're lost. And we will be paralyzed with fear. Because what we do is we see these things that we can see, how untrustworthy they really are. We're seeing all these things that we put our trust fail. And we will see how vulnerable we are in the whirlwind in which we have absolutely no control. And the world tempts us, my friends, to grasp at an illusion, an illusion that we're in control, an illusion of security. And the reality is in and of ourselves, there is no control. There is no security. But the greater reality, the deeper reality, is that in Christ, he is in complete control. And if we're in Christ, if we are united to him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are and we have absolute security. We have no need for any fear. No need to fear a virus. No need to fear government mandates. No need to fear the actions and ideologies and propagandas of those who hate God. They are all powerless against Christ. And they are powerless against those united to him by faith alone. So just two quick takeaways, two applications from this sermon. And the first is faithfully stay the course. 
resting in Christ, taking refuge in him, not fearing those who hate God. They cannot hurt those of us who are in Christ. And the second takeaway builds on this first. We are to fearlessly proclaim the Son. We are to unapologetically proclaim the Son. We are to proclaim the Son regardless of ridicule, regardless of personal fear, regardless of personal cost. We are to proclaim the Son. And we are to refuse to buy into the lie, refuse to submit to the lie. We are to proclaim Christ and Christ alone as our only hope. And the reason we do this, my friends, is because there are many, many, many people who are deceived. And there are many people who embrace the lies. And they think what they're doing is right. They, they, they don't actively, they don't think they hate God. They think they're acting kind. They think they're acting in accordance with God's will. But they don't know God's will. They don't have his spirit. They cannot understand his word. Even if they would look to his word, they can, it makes no sense because they don't have the Holy Spirit. And just last week, I had an encounter with a, with a <clears throat> pastor from California. And he was basically mocking my unenlightened, how unlightened I was to suggest that there might be a spiritual danger for people not worshiping in person. He thought this was completely foolish. He said, why would someone worship in, purpose, in person? There's so much opportunity for, for, for getting sick and the viruses out there when you could just as easily stay at home and, and, and worship on a live stream. And he thought the live stream was superior because, because it didn't put people at risk. And he said, he said that I needed to, to rethink my preconceived ideas of what faithful worship looks like today in light of the, the pandemic. And I tried to explain to him, and I gave him an example of Jeremiah Pitts, who came to me when we were early on in, in the pandemic. I think we were about five weeks that we were just worshiping, doing live stream only. And Jeremiah comes to me and goes, John, I'm dying. My family is dying. This is the longest that I have ever been without worship. And I said, come on to worship. And there were others. Jack was here. And, and we went above the 10 that was required by law because we realized it was more important spiritually that we be together. And I tried to share this. Hopefully this guy would understand this. And what he said is, he said, perhaps I should have been better teaching so that his faith wouldn't be so fragile. That was the answer he gave to me. Now, I agree. I probably could have taught better. But anyone who knows Jeremiah Pitts is not going to describe him as having fragile faith. I don't think there's a man I know who has stronger faith, who's a missionary now in, in Uganda. So it's amazing. And, and this person could not even comprehend what I was saying, that there is a spiritual danger of not uh, meeting, and that it's vastly greater than any physical danger from a virus. Now, it was, a, it was a short encounter that I had with him, so I can't really speak to his spiritual condition. He may be a true believer. He may not. I don't know. But it appears from this short interaction, and, from, and for his sake, I hope I'm wrong with this, that he couldn't see this because he has spiritual blindness. He is blind to spiritual reality. He had no idea what I was saying. And, and a person who is an unbeliever, it would make no sense because they believe it's all fantasy land. They believe we're talking to ourselves. We believe we're doing this because it makes us feel better. They don't believe there's a real God who listens and who answers prayer. They don't believe any of this. So the answer is what he needs is he needs to kiss the sun rather than to kiss the ideologies of those who hate God. But my friends, we must continue to proclaim the sun, continue to proclaim Christ to those who hate him, to those who are deceived, to those who want the, the, to be applauded by the culture and those who hate God. But Christ is long-suffering. 
And the time of mercy is now. The door of grace is still open. But we don't know how much longer it's going to remain open. And we must continue to pray. Pray for His grace and His mercy to be poured out on those who are spiritually blind. And we are to plead for God to to open their eyes before it's too late, while there's still time for them to take refuge in Him. That is our call as Christians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise You for Your Son. We praise You for Your Holy Spirit that has opened our eyes to see our need from Him. And Father, there are so many, so many living in darkness, so many who think they are believers. So many who are like Balaam, who think that they are serving God when they are spiritually dead, when they have not kissed the son, they have not embraced him. And there are so many who are seeking the applause and the approval of those who hate God. And there are so many who fear, fear their rejection. Father, I pray that you will give each one of us here, you will give us the courage, the courage to stand with the son, the courage to take whatever is is dished out to us and to be able to stand and and not bow the knee, not bow the knee to Baal. Uh, Father, it, it, it is getting harder and harder. But Lord, we trust you. We trust your spirit. We trust your son. We pray it in his name. Amen.